Hello, my girls, gays, theys, and the men who hold our drinks for us. Welcome back to the Rebuttal Podcast. I could not be more excited, happy, jazzed, as always, to be speaking to you through your earphones, headphones, car stereo, televisions, YouTube app, you fucking name it. I am doing well, doing swell, if you will. If you're wondering why it looks like I got absolutely bop-bopped in the face, that would be likely because I did um, enter the world of getting lip filler. Oh my God, crazy. And it is swollen as hell. I got it literally like yesterday and they're like, yeah, it'll take like two weeks for it to look normal. I'm like, oh, perfect. Beautiful. Not that I don't have like shit to do a podcast to run. Um, and what would this podcast be without, without my face? I guess. I don't know. We are doing what I, you know, you guys know I love to do. Okay. Which is go back in time to a time where I can absolutely slander, dog walk, make fun of, make shit up about everyone involved. Okay. Because as we know, you can't defame a dead person. All right. Can't fucking do it. We don't let you do it, which is going to be a great segue into what this case is about anyway, but you'll see. Okay. If you are a super fan of me, um, if so, oh my gosh, you and my mother should totally hang out. Um, <laughs> uh, you know that I hop on to a bunch of podcasts that I really enjoy, that I like uh, with people that I fuck with, people that I like. Um, and one person who I have followed for forever on TikTok, on Instagram, everywhere really, um, who has a podcast for for a long time, is obviously older than mine um, and is just so well done and, and brilliant. Um, her name is Tani Caesar. She is at Tani Caesar on TikTok, on Instagram, everywhere. And her podcast is called Unhinged History. She is what I am to the legal field, I think, except with an Australian accent, which automatically puts her about 300 levels above anything I could ever be. The reason why I bring up Tani Caesar and her content and her podcast is because I went on her podcast, Unhinged History, a few months back, and we drank one too many shots. And we talked about this case. I loved that episode. I had such a fucking blast. Um, but I feel like I could flesh out kind of a little bit more with that case than we had the time to do on her podcast. Um, so I thought, you know what, I'm gonna do it again for you guys, but also tie it into the current legal sphere. In order to understand this case, you need to get into character. Okay, right here, right now. All right, we're going to role play, close your eyes, do whatever. If you're driving, dear God, don't close your eyes. And if you did, I don't know what to tell you. Okay, stupid as a stupid does, common sense ain't that common. Okay, imagine in your head that you are a homie. You're a person. You are a being living your life at around 900 AD. Okay, AD meaning like after death. Okay, after Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos, Jesus Christos has his moment. You know what I mean? He he rose. He rose from the dead. Jesus Christ, superstar. 
All right. He had his, he had his complete absolute era. All right. He was living, he was vibing. He just stole the show. All right. But, but see, this is now 900, 900 years later. All right. So you got, you got other problems, you got other issues, right? I'm sure that really rocked the boat then for sure. Right. The same way it would probably rock the boat now. Um, if, you know, aliens, came down, like actually came down, right? Because evidence of aliens existing, that is so snooze fest, right? Snooze crews, no one gives a shit. We have got bigger shit going on, like genocides happening. You know what I mean? Like world conflicts, international shitballs, COVID, drama, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Like I'm, I'm ex- exhausted, right? You, oh, really? Evidence that aliens exist? Yeah, where have you been? Like I've been sitting pretty. I've been absolutely sat in front of a television, playing, booming, Discovery Channel, History Channel, Animal Planet my entire life, okay? My entire fucking life since I could open these big-ass eyeballs, right? I have known every type of conspiracy theory there is about UFOs, about aliens, about, you know, the seven wonders of the world and how they're probably seven wonders of the outer world. You know, we get it. Um, Yeah, I believe in all that shit, like for sure. Definitely other people out there other sentient beings for sure watching upstairs. Um, the same way that I am sure ants at the bottom of a dumpster in an Applebee's parking lot thinking that they have it all are, are probably carry, are probably wondering, right? In their little A Bug's Life moment. I wonder, I wonder if there are people, right, who open this hatch and throw our food down right? If, if there's, if there's people out there wondering what we're doing, if they might, might come and say hi sometime, right? The people living upstairs, as far as I'm concerned, okay, we are the ants at the bottom of the dumpster. Applebee's, you get it. Okay. Dollarita night. They don't give a flying fuck about what we're doing. Not because they're intrigued or scared of us. It's because they literally, they're like, yeah, what, what could I possibly get from those fucking chums? We're going to breeze past them. Like we're at the zoo, grab a handful of popcorn shrimp blow out of there. Right. The ones who have visited. Okay. The ones who have visited us. Okay. And their UFOs or whatever, whatever the fuck, they're not the smart ones going on these missions, these scientific expeditions, right? They are literally the equivalent of ocean gate. Okay the submarine going to the Titanic for the 800th time, okay? Carrying what? Five rich guys? At least just violently rich people who aren't actually experts in literally anything with an Xbox controller and an ego the size of Mars? Look, listen, look and listen, okay? (laughs) Bringing it back. I want you to imagine, all right, you're living in this time period where Jesus, all right, rose from the dead, like Michael Jackson coming out of the bottom of a stage, right? A thousand years ago, okay, 900 prior, okay? The aftermath of that, right? What's up? What's going on? There's turmoil, okay? There's definitely moil, all right? Um, And it's taking some turns, for sure. You are not a peasant necessarily, okay, in this role play I'm having you do. You're not necessarily a peasant, okay? You are definitely hanging with some high rollers, okay, with some cool peeps, definitely, but you're not really the cool peep, okay? You're, you are cool peep adjacent, meaning like at this time, okay, guess what was big? The Catholic church, correct, okay? The Catholic fucking church. Not only was it huge, big, humongo, all right, in the religion sector, okay? That was more of like 
their side gig, okay, that was more like their costuming, they were big in politics, okay? They were running the fucking show when it came to Italy, when it came to Rome, for sure, okay? When it came to colonialism, dominating the space, okay? Interworld conflicts, they were the ones appointing the bitches, okay? They were the ones converting everybody to their shit, all right? So they could tithe, okay? They, they, could, they could collect the dime, okay? So they could build these beautiful churches and have their beautiful vibe, motif, okay, the stained glass moment um, to cover up all of their heinous, horrible crimes. Amazing, perfect, gorgeous, okay? So you are chilling, all right, probably in a sandal, okay, in in January of 897 AD, okay? I'm not really sure how January is in Italy, but I can tell you that it's a little frigid. Okay, it's a little cold, it's a little breezy, right? I was in Switzerland in January um, in, what, 2016? I can tell you that it was a little fridge. Okay, it was a little nipply. You are freezing your fucking patootie off. It is January in Italy. Okay, that's cold. It's a little frigid. You maybe have enough money for a light jacket. Okay, enough chickens for a light jacket. A sandal, if you will. Maybe a heavy sock, but not so much a boot yet. You're really, you're really jonesing for a boot. And and you're walking, okay, along the street. You're walking along the street, and all of a sudden everyone's like, hey. We got to get to the church, okay? We got to get to the fucking church, the cathedral specifically right fucking now, okay? Right now, some shit's going down and the Pope wants everyone to be there, okay? Everyone to fucking be there. You got to get there. So you're like, fuck, okay? Let me just, you know, get my knees up for these rich motherfuckers, okay? Hopefully the Pope will see my face and be happy about it. Um, you know, he he's a newbie. He This Pope just got appointed, all right? But maybe I can win his favor. So, so you run, okay, you run into the into the cathedral, you know, do the hunky-dory, specifically the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. Okay, gorgeous, stunning, beautiful. And you pull up, and this is the scene that you see. Stephen the sixth, the Pope at the time, okay, is yelling, screaming, if you will, from his chair, from his judge's seat hurling accusations at a man sitting in a chair. And you're thinking, okay, trials happen, right? Things go down for sure. Contentious stuff. Maybe someone's on trial. But, but, then, but then you notice this smell. You notice the smell um, coming from the chair area. And you realize, oh my God, the Catholic Church strapped, strapped a corpse to a chair, to a chair in, in, in papal robes. Okay. In the Pope outfit, in all the refinery, all the jewels. Okay. The funny hat, everything, but it's a, it's a corpse corpse. It's not like a, been a couple hours corpse. That corpse has been a corpse for nine months. Mm -hmm. Let's give some context. Okay. Posthumous marriage is legal in France with governmental approval. That's right. You can marry a corpse in France if if you can prove that the corpse really would have wanted to do that. Pinky swear. In a 2004 case in which this happened where the French government approved a fiance's request to marry her dead husband, um, the new spouse, her, okay, was not entitled to his assets, to the decedent's assets by that marriage, okay? Instead, her posthumous wedding could legitimize her children born after 
their father's death, making them his heirs under French law. With this very interesting exception, many legal rules around the world and in France as well suggest that the dead do not have rights most of the time. Often, the dead cannot marry, vote, or get divorced. The executor of an estate cannot sue for the libel or slander of a deceased person, and the right to medical privacy substantially erodes at death, giving family members the ability to obtain sensitive information about a decedent's medical conditions. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. On the other hand, various legal institutions have spent considerable time trying to protect the rights of the dead. As a result, most testamentary distributions, burial requests, and organ donation designations are held to be valid even if they contradict the preferences of the living. We've all heard about it. Someone who's an organ donor, much to their parents' chagrin, right? Even over their parents' objection, we honor the dead's last request. Certain destructions of property requested in wills are honored even though they may have a negative impact on the living. Some states even statutorily recognized a posthumous right of publicity, and recent case law suggests there may be a posthumous right to reproductive autonomy. That's right, someone taking another individual's sperm or eggs and creating a child. Cases have obviously come out after that person has died to support the fact that you cannot really, without their consent, without their release, without their full knowledge when they were living and proof that they agreed to this when they were living, you cannot create a child from their bodily property uh, without, without more, right? You need to show that that was what they wanted, that that was what was agreed to. They do have some kind of autonomy. This is an interesting concept to think about, autonomy of a dead person, right? Especially when you think about all of the autonomy that we take away 
from women who are living, alive and breathing in this country today, around the world today, when it comes to their body, when it comes to their reproductive rights, their reproductive health, their access to reproductive care, their access to really any type of resource or option, okay, when it comes down to it, specifically that autonomy being taken away by politicians with a bad toupee and an even worse IQ and Supreme Court justices who, for lack of a better way to put it, are about as supreme as a crunch wrap digested three times over, right? Perfect, amazing, gorgeous, beautiful. It's a weird concept, but we have it, okay? Posthumous rights, posthumous autonomy, posthumous requests. Why does the law give decedents, people who are past, certain legal rights but not others? While many legal rules favoring the dead may be explained simply as an attempt to control the behaviors of living persons, such an explanation is incomplete because it ignores cultural norms, including an innate desire among the living to honor the wishes of the dead, even when those wishes negatively impact their own wishes. The law also strives to honor a decedent's wishes and to protect his interests because society has chosen within limits to adhere to the principle of autonomy. This is why courts often consider a decedent's wishes when determining the disposition of his corpse or property. Of course, there are legal limits to autonomy even for the living, as we know, and the law is constantly struggling with the exact boundaries of these limits. With the dead, autonomy is more limited than with the living, both because there is no individual who can speak out contemporaneously about the decedent's desires and because the ability to make choices and change preferences dies with de the decedent. Logically, this means that in the United States and around the world, in pretty much every country with a legal system that is up and running just fine, you cannot be put on trial criminally after your death, okay? You, that does not adhere to your right to confront your accuser, okay, who's really being confronted here. And also, it just goes against the whole principle and policy behind criminal punishment. Who are we punishing? Okay, who are we punishing? Um, you can't be put on trial in the same sense that you would be if you were living, obviously. You can, right, um, file claims against a decedent's estate based on things or wrongful acts or crimes that they have may, may have committed while they were living um, for, for right property and exchange money, et cetera, in exchange for your harm, your suffering, because their estate, okay, is what they left behind right? You're not suing literally the trustee of the state. You are trying to sue based the estate, the, the you know, property for what you should be given in exchange for what you have suffered at the hands of the person who died, okay? Even though in the law, there are often coroner's inquests, okay, where they essentially look into the cause of a crime, a murder, something that happened, um, and, 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 can at the end of that report lay blame, right? Say, yeah, this person, we think it is our opinion this person fucking did it. Governmental agencies do that. Prosecutor, prosecutorial offices do that. 
Um, police force, law enforcement does that, um, especially where there is a deceased accused, okay? Um, essentially to grant the victims, the victims' families, some kind of closure in the sense that, hey, if they were around, like, for sure, we'd get them, girlies. But, uh, yeah, that conclusion or any conclusions of that type that that are made isn't the equivalent of a conviction, okay? While you cannot have a posthumous conviction, you can, as we know, have a posthumous acquittal, okay? This happens way, way, way too often where someone is killed by the state after serving on death row for many years um, for crimes that they were convicted of. Horrible, horrible crimes, heinous crimes, or they die in prison for those crimes uh, or serving time for those crimes. And then it comes out after they died that they are exonerated. Okay. Exonerated from everything that they did. And the reason why the state and our society puts money and time into those exonerations. And there are beautiful, amazing organizations in public defense and the exoneration project, for example, who take the time even when that person has passed, to push for DNA testing and to push for, you know, um, essentially clearance, these exonerations, is because every single little grain of sand on the beach matters. Everyone does. And it should. It's a life. It was a life. And to at the very least have your legacy and your family be able to live with your name cleared is more than enough of a reason to do it. In 897 AD, the Catholic Church did not did not really hold these same beliefs, okay? They did not think that you were really gone after you departed from your body, okay? They thought that your shit, okay, your body, your cuerpo, it it held some it held some power okay it held some reign for sure the same way that the catholic church wanted to hold people up put them up on a pedestal okay in a sainthood they also absolutely okay thought there was power in leaving leaving someone's memory around lingering without being done over like the lamp from Pixar, okay, and pushed right back down at the gates of hell where they belonged, right? It did not, it was not enough for, to die, okay? In the Catholic Church, in the Catholic way, it is not enough for you to be dead, okay? We want to we wanna spit on your grave. We want to spit on your corpse. We want to make sure that nothing about your memory, nothing about you that's ever left over to the extent that your soul is even mildly still floating around, um, we want to we spray bug spray right into your fucking face, okay? Um, which, you know, taking a step back from the insanity of it all, real, real as hell, right? Like, look, I've had my days. Like, I've had my days. I've had my moments, for sure, where I have absolutely held such a loathing, okay, towards somebody that I've thought, you know what? Death would be too sweet, right? Death would be too good, too amazing for them. And and I will say that for everything the Catholic Church has absolutely done um, politically, globally, um, 
it just devastated so many communities, religions, cultures, indigenous people, um, ways of life, right? Like the entire face of, of the Western world, the Eastern world, most of the world really, um, is not untouched by the Catholic church's influence and reign. Um, they were not a religion. They, that was their side piece gig. That was their cloak that they put on to be a political powerhouse. Okay. To be a government. And they wanted to globally dominate, right? They did, they did it. They did. Um, and then, you know, build these beautiful motifs, stained glass cathedrals, the robes, the gold, the vibe, the candles, like you're kidding. You know what I mean? They ate that one thing. They ate that one fucking thing for sure. They used all of that to distract us from all the heinous crimes they continue to commit. Right. For years and years, um, still to this day, definitely. Okay, we can say all of that about the Catholic Church. But I will say, I will say, I will say, okay, that you know what? I respect the fact that they they were petty. They were petty in ways that didn't have to make sense. They didn't even try to justify it. They didn't even try to like, right? claim there was a whole like God spoke to me shit, like burning bush type beat. You know what I mean? They like pull a Moses, like pull, pull a Moses. Okay. For sure. They didn't even try to do that. They were like, Moses, keep your burning bush. I'm standing on what I fucking say, right? I'm standing on my business. I fucking hated this motherfucker. God had nothing to do with it. I think that's kind of iconic. I think that's kind of, that's kind of a moment for sure. Um, absolutely a moment. Okay. And so you're probably wondering like, oh, like what did they do? Right? Like what did they use this petty for? right, to do. Well, you see. Mm -hmm. In January of 897 AD, the Catholic Church, the Pope specifically, Pope Stephen VI, exhumed a body that had been buried, okay, in St. Peter's Basilica for nine months, nine months, um, dressed it, in papal robes, the robage, the silly hat, the gold, the chains, the rings, okay? The motif, the shoes. Yep, the slippers, the slippery dipplies. He marched the corpse to the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. He strapped that corpse to a chair, sitting upright, of course, because even in the afterlife, we can't get a second to lay the fuck down, strapped to a chair rigid, rigid spine. Okay. I'm sure no lumbar support, right? Asked pretty much everyone in town to come on in, right? Fill up even the cheap seats in the back. Okay. The nosebleeds, this place better be popping. And he put this corpse on trial. Yep. Full trial. He even appointed the corpse, a defense attorney to speak for the corpse at this trial. Let's let's get into it. Let's get into it. And you might be thinking, oh, that's definitely some 897 AD shit, right? Sounds like something the Catholic Church would do back then for sure. It definitely doesn't happen today. Oh, right, right. No, yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree with you. Super interesting. Um, you want to know the most recent time a corpse was put on trial? in the world today that we know of, that would be in uh, 2013. 2013. The only difference is that a corpse wasn't necessito, wasn't necessarily um, 
ripped from slumber and placed upright in a seated position. Okay, buckled in, but you get the picture. And I'm going to break down both instances, okay? The one that happened 1,126 years ago and the one that happened 10 years ago, okay? Amazing. This is rebuttal. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. I'm Reb Maisel. Buckle in, strap in, and um, get your nose plugs ready because it's about to get fucking rank. In 897 AD, the corpse of a pope was put on trial by his living successor. Pope Formosus, dead for nine months, was hardly qualified to defend himself in a court of law. Nevertheless, Pope Stephen VI propped up in a chair on a papal throne to stand trial. To stand trial. Mm -hmm. He even appointed a deacon to speak on the corpse's behalf, a defense attorney, if you will, right? For obviously this very sane and stable Pope's trial that's going on. And I'm very, very sure that, of course, you're going to do your very best job and not just say whatever gets this corpse back in the ground, right? For sure. Onlookers, obviously, of course, like the Daily Mail, like TMZ, like TikTok Live, took stock of what was happening. They wrote that shit down. Absolutely. It was word of mouth. It was writing down. It was gossip. It was reality fucking TV. Okay. Everyone was packed in this fucking, oh, was it a courtroom? Oh no. This all happened at the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. Yep. You can go visit it today. Highly recommend. While Stephen VI hurled accusations at Formosus, the accused remained stoically silent as might be expected of a fucking corpse rotting in a chair, smelling up the place in January of 897 AD. Oh, it's cold weather. Nothing could have masked what was going on at this basilica, but I digress. In the words of the historian George Ives, quote, the old man's body, like a monstrous doll, might nod and bend while the attendants supported it, or collapse in a ghastly bundle if they left it alone. But it made no sound. And the deacon, the defense attorney, would probably be wary in his defense, for there were dark holes nearby other than sepulchers. This trial, that of course was tagged, as the Catholic Church is doing, is now known as the cadaver synod, okay? The word synod, S-Y-N-O-D, means like the communion, the gathering of papal figures, cardinals, popes, etc. Okay. So it was like the cadaver kickback. Okay. The cadaver meet and greet. Quite literally the cadaver fucking meet and greet. Okay. Cadaver side synod doesn't really have the, the same ring to it. So it's going to be cadaver meet and greet. Thank you. What is the context? What's happening in the world? Okay. If you want to imagine yourself as a peasant in the cheap seats or maybe as a 
deacon representing a corpse, this is what you're dealing with, okay? This is from a historical text, quote, All real power in Rome was at this time in the hands of the great families who, through their connection with the local militia, had become practically a feudal aristocracy. These families were all jealous of one another and were perpetually fighting for supremacy. The aim of each party pursued by every resource of violence and intrigue was to get control of the chair of St. Peter. Its occupant must be one of theirs at all costs. What was the chair of St. Peter, you ask? The papacy, the popeship, the popal chair, however you want to say it. All of the adjectives and nounage used to describe like the pope, okay, and Catholicism, et cetera, are all like weird. They don't really roll off the tongue, okay? They don't really roll. So, so papal, okay? Papal is going to want to, when I say papal, it means like the popes, okay? Like the same thing as saying presidency. Papal, okay, papal, the paps, all right? So it was desperate housewives. It was real housewives of Rome. During the Iron Age of the papacy, the Pope era in Rome, in Italy, all right? Popes were succeeding popes faster than a toupee in a hurricane. Why, you may ask? Oh, because everyone, all of these major powerful families, We're living in Italy. We're living around Rome specifically. And all of them wanted one of their family members to be on, to be in the chair, to literally be on the iron fucking throne. It was literally Game of Thrones, but Catholic with robes, with gold, with books, with stained glass, with motif, with singing, with holding hands, with peace be with you. Right? Great. In 94 years from 872 AD through 965 AD, there were 24 popes. And in a nine-year period between 896 AD and 904 AD, there were no less than nine popes, okay? To give you context on that, right? 94 years, 24 popes. In one of those periods, nine years, nine popes, okay? We got a pope every Christmas, all right? For your birthday, new fucking pope, okay? New guy in a funny hat, By contrast, to give you context, to give you an idea of how fucking crazy that is, there was a total of only nine popes in the entire 20th century. And one of them, John Paul I, reigned only 33 days. So so to have nine popes in nine years and 24 and 94 feels like a lot, right? Feels like there's some strife. Feels like maybe like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Something's cracked right? Split in half. Let's fix. Nope, they did not. During this time, the powerful families that dominated Rome not only arranged to have their supporters elected pope, but also, quote, had pontiffs, meaning popes, deposed and killed to advance their political ambitions or as vengeance for some action taken by the pope that offended them or inconvenienced some plan or plot, end quote. What does deposed mean? It doesn't mean take your testimony. Oh no, the word deposed means driven from office by force if they refuse to resign, right? So kind of like what the January 6thers like kind kind of tried to do um except without Mima and a shitty flag and an IQ collectively of 5. In this era, being elected pope was a whole lot like being diagnosed with a horrific disease. 
that killed you in a week minimum. As a consequence of this being such a clusterfuck grab for power, for the papacy, okay, for that throne, that Peter's chair, of those 24 popes who held office from 872 AD to 965 AD, seven died violently or under suspicious circumstances. Five popes were assassinated in office or deposed and then murdered. John VIII, the first pope to be assassinated, was poisoned by his entourage. When the poison did did not act quickly enough, his soul was then crushed by blows from a hammer. Julia, just pause. Julius Caesar was not like, yeah, okay, his death might have might have been crazy, but every other pope during this era is like his shit was fucking lame as hell. Oh, you mean he got stabbed by everyone and all of his supporters in a room with everyone watching? Okay, well, my fucking posse, my entourage, okay, spiked my drink and then hit me with a hammer. Like, join the fucking club, and I'm not even the only one. So get in line. Both Stephen VII and Leo V were deposed, imprisoned, and strangled. Strangled. John X was deposed, imprisoned, and suffocated by being smothered with a pillow. Stephen IX was imprisoned, horribly mutilated by having his nose, eyes, lips, tongue, and hands removed, and died of his injuries. Two other popes died in circumstances strongly indicative of foul play. You don't say. Hadrian III was rumored to have been poisoned, and John XII, the sources tell us, either died of a stroke suffered while in bed with a married woman or was beaten to death by the woman's outraged husband. Drama. Drama, drama, drama. Very flamboyant. Very much a show. Very much a scene. Okay? They don't do anything quietly. Okay? They are not quiet luxury. They are loud ego, right? Amazing. So you're gathering. Bad era. To be a pope, you were not protected. You had a funny hat and a thousand ways to die. The Iron Age of the papacy also produced a number of unfortunate firsts for the popes. The first papal assassination, as I already explained to you, took place when John VIII was murdered on December 16th, 882 AD. In 896 AD, Boniface VI became the first and only person to be elected pope after having previously been twice degraded from holy orders for immorality. So in the same way that our country (laughs) um, elects so many people, repeatedly re-elects so many people who literally have so many allegations against them proven correct, right? potentially in like legit pedophile rings, um, absolutely just don't even have their wits about them. Yeah, they're reelected the same way that these popes were. The same way. Which which just goes to show this, this was just America without a Wi-Fi box. You know what I'm saying? In 904 AD, Sergius III became the first and only pope to order the murder of another pope. Drama, Desperate Housewives. Pursuant to his order, Leo V, who previously had been deposed, was strangled in prison. In 931 AD, John XI became the first and only illegitimate son of a pope to be elected pope. His father was Sergius III. In 955 AD, John XI, 12, became the first and only teenager to be elected pope. He was 18 at the time. 
do I even need to comment on this? It's Game of Thrones. It's Game of Thrones. It's Game of Thrones. Illegitimate sons, teenagers becoming pope, strangling orders, thrown out of power. This all sets the tone. Okay, all sets the tone for the context for our cadaver meet and greet that occurred January 897 AD. As you know, in 897 AD, the Catholic Church propped a dead man's corpse in a chair to stand trial to be convicted and sentenced for his crimes. But who was this corpse? Whomst was this? Okay. Who was this guy who couldn't have a wink of sleep for even a minute? Okay. He had nine months in a tomb Okay, in his tomb, okay, in St. Peter's Basilica, minding his own fucking biz, minding his business, when he was absolutely risen from the dead, not in the Jesus way, okay? Not in the Jesus way, not in the Jesus moment, all right? A little less publicized, a little less iconic, but nevertheless, memorable enough to be spoken about on this fucking podcast 1,126 years later. But what really got the ball rolling? when it comes to our Pope Formosus' meet and greet, his cadaver synod, okay? Why did this happen? Well, it all started with 9-11. Well, not really. It started with their 9-11, okay? Which was the death of Charlemagne, all right? You remember Charlemagne? Me neither. Let's refresh. Charlemagne reigned over the Roman Empire uh, for a minute, okay? He was crowned emperor in 800 A.D., and at that time, life was pretty good. Okay, life was pretty amazing in the Christian West, all right? Charlemagne had high standards for education and clergy and facilitated political stability. But um, unfortunately, his son Louis, Louis, okay, um, was a little less capable, as sons usually are. So after Charlemagne's death, the empire was divided into three sections under Charlemagne's grandsons, Louis the German, Charles the Bald, and Lothair. Look, if your name is Charles the Bald, that's your legacy. Own it, right? Own it. Shave it off. Cue ball it. Don't have any of like the weird patchiness going on. Commit. I hope he did. More divisions beyond just those three occurred over time. Okay, so everything was fractured as fuck after our boy Charman, okay, Charlemagne, bounced. The whole political situation was very upset. Papal elections were manipulated in favor of noble factions at the time. Bishops were elected by local clergy with the, appro with the approval of the lay people, which meant that local families held significant influence in elections. And that included the office of the Pope, who was also the Bishop of Rome. Getting your mans into the pontificate, okay, into the papal line was absolutely not only amazing for your family, for your interests, but it was considered a coup a coup d'etat for any faction, okay? All of these split up little parties, okay? Imagine if we had like 23 political parties. All of us want president, okay? All of us want the press, right? Every time though, every time one of one of your own becomes press, that is literally considered a coup and everyone's pissed. Not a single person's happy. <laughs> Enter our boy, our corpse in waiting to meet and greet you, Pope Formosus. Pope Formosus was born around 800-ish AD, okay? Give or take a few. The only reason why people guess that is because around his cadaver days, okay, around his death, they put him at around 80 
80, okay? Which to me seems like a long time, okay? Back then, I feel like a paper cut would have had you down for the count at age 17, but who am I, okay? I figured that everyone was living until they were like 30. Apparently fucking not, okay? Apparently, immune systems made a fucking steal, okay? Who knows? Formosus was formidable, I guess. He was a successful missionary and cardinal bishop of Porto, Italy, he had increased the presence of the church in Bul- in Bulgaria enough that Bulgarian prince Bogoris petitioned Nicholas I to have Formosus as the archbishop of the Bulgarian church, which I'm assuming is the equivalent of like a gold Olympic medal, cover of Vogue, like that is insane, right? That's our that he's actually our favorite. We pick him from a completely different from Bulgaria, like that's crazy. Okay, crazy nuts insane. Nicholas denied the request because of a canonical rule that a bishop could not move from one episcopal see to another. Formosus returned to Rome and Bulgaria entered the Byzantine church. Okay, so basically like Formosus did all this work and then they were like, nah, see you later. Okay. Nevertheless, Formosus, because of his popularity, okay, and all the rumors circulating about how much he just flirted with the Bulgarians and they just loved him so much, he gained a lot of a lot of favor. Everyone really liked him. Everyone really fucked with Formosus. Big F, okay? He gained the recognition of powerful supporters, which in 9th century Europe meant he attracted plenty of enemies too. Formosus's growing influence eventually led to his excommunication by John VIII in 876 AD, which is hilarious. Again, you know what I mean? For someone to just be like, you actually need to leave our fucking club. No. Get the fuck. You're not allowed to be in our church anymore. I don't really like your views. I don't like the way you talk. Charges against Formosus included an attempt to become Bishop of Bulgaria, being a traitor to Charles the Bald, who Formosus disapproved of, and that he coveted the papacy. Okay. Luckily for Formosus, John VIII's pontificate ended when he was assassinated in 882, and Pope Marinus I reinstated Formosus who returned to his bishopric in Porto. So essentially, if you're ever in trouble, just wait until until that guy who hated you dies and a new one will step in. Anarchy. Fucking anarchy. And I can only fucking imagine that all of, right, all of these are like the rich bitches, okay? The rich people having a scuffle, having a scurry, okay? The real housewives of Rome of Italy, right? The one percenters. And then you have the 99 percenters who are just living their fucking daily lives, and are just probably either consuming it like reality TV, like this shit's fucking hilarious. You know what I mean? Like, look, I'm just trying to like plow my field and like get my sandals on lock. You know what I mean? Have a wool sock over these toes during January, okay? When it's fucking freezing. Um, Or they're like completely oblivious and don't even know what's going on. They're like, who the fuck? Who's our president again? Who gives a fuck? Like I'm dying of typhoid. You know what I mean? Marinus I, who reinstated Formosus, lasted about two years. His successor, St. Andrian III, just one. And Stephen V, about six long years. So everyone, right, short tenure, short reign. Formosus, Formosus is still there, okay? He was reinstated, of course. But uh, yeah, people are going to not like you for being out and then in and then out and then in, okay? Finally, Formosus ascended to the papacy. Finally, what he wanted the whole time, in 891 AD, he was now Pope. Formosus, while he was Pope, was collaborating with the King of Germany, Arnulf, who attempted a siege on Rome with the support of Formosus, quite literally January 6th, a thousand years prior. 
What in the fuck? Arnold from Germany attacked Rome twice. The second time took. The second time finally took, and he was successful. And Formosus crowned Arnulf emperor of Rome. Okay? Like, the Germans came in, swooped your mans, coup d'etat, and, and our, our boy, our pope, was like, yup, love it. Of course you're going to have people who fucking hate you. To be honest, I, I kind of get it. Okay, I'm kind of understanding the 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 whole cadaver sign on meet and greet situation. What the fuck was that? By the way, the word formosus, the name, means handsome or good looking in Latin. Just like as an aside. I think it's kind of interesting. Needless to say, there were not there were not many of Formosus after this, right? Something about a legacy not wanting to be, to be connected to this motherfucker, right? Amazing. Formosus pretty much supports and leads a coup d'etat on Rome. Um, it fails. And uh, yeah, he he was elderly as fuck. He was in his 80s. And he ended up dying after a reign of five years as Pope on April 4th, 896 AD. And like many a Pope before him, was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. Because unlike many a Pope before him, um, he didn't die a violent death. He was not spit on on his way out. Um, he was just lowered into the ground normally. He just died of natural causes. Everyone was like, yeah, he was Pope, whatever, right? On to the next. Although Formosus had been, according to historians, quote, a man of exceptional intelligence, ability, and even sanctity, he had made some bitter political enemies, including one of his successors, Stephen VI. The corpse meet and greet, cadaver meet and greet, was ultimately ordered by his successor, the reigning Pope, Stephen VI, the CEO of holding a motherfucking grudge, okay? He, Stephen, Stevie Steve, had been pushed into issuing the order by a powerful Roman family dynasty and other anti-Formosus political factions and who apparently also was personally motivated by a, quote, near hysterical hatred of Formosus, okay? He hated his ass, for not just the things he was doing in relation to, like, you know, Germany taking over, et cetera. Apparently, he had been holding a grudge against some shit that Formosus did to him 30 years prior. Which I dare say is just a tad bit relatable. Just a tad. So, the trial. How did it go down? I'll tell you. No trial transcript of the cadaver synod exists. I know, sorry, but uh, we do have a lot of accounts of what fucking happened, okay? Stephen, Stephen Steve, personally presided over the proceeding, our Pope Steve, okay? He was the chief judge, all right? He said, I am in, I'm the one here, okay? He didn't just want this to be a dog and pony show, okay? He wanted actually the whole procedure to go down, which I think is fucking hilarious. A little, a little like camp if you ask me, you know? He said, no, we're going to do the whole procedure. We're going to do oye, oye. Like, we're going to have everyone stand, sit, swear in, the whole nine yards. His co-judges, co-justices, were a number of Roman clergy who were there under compulsion and out of fear. The trial began when the exhumed corpse of Formosus was carried into the courtroom. On Stephen sixth orders, the putrescent corpse, the decaying, smelling, nasty-ass corpse, which had been lying in its tomb for nine months, had been dressed in full pontifical vestments, meaning the whole uniform, okay? The Pope hat, gold, chains, etc. 
The dead body was then propped up in a chair behind a teenage deacon, quaking with fear, whose responsibility was to defend Formosus by speaking on his behalf. The presiding judge, Stephen VI, then read the three charges. Formosus was accused of perjury, coveting the papacy, and violating church canons when he was elected pope. Whatever that means, right? It's giving grudge. It's giving grudges, okay? But the funniest shit that happened during this trial was this. God actually cast a vote from his bench upstairs, if you can believe it. The Lord handed down his verdict. I am convinced, at least. In the middle of the trial, an earthquake shook the room. A clear sign from God, according to accounts of spectators, quote, for the stones themselves, execrating such a monstrosity, then cried out with their own voice by knocking against each other that they would more willingly suffer spontaneous ruin than that the Roman church should remain depressed by so great a scandal. But if the stones cried out, Stephen the sixth paid them no mind. He persisted with this case. Amazing. You're probably wondering what I'm also wondering, which is why the fuck did Stephen care so much about pulling his corpse out from the ground? Why don't you just do this like as an announcement and say, hey, we find him guilty. Goodbye. You know what I mean? Next levels of petty, the dead body of a holy person in that time and today in many religions and cultures was more than just rotting flesh. It was transformed by death into a holy relic, a source of miraculous power. These relics were the center of religious life. As the historian Lionel Rothkrug writes, quote, every church, every altar, every nobleman, every king, every monastery had relics, sometimes in great quantity. They were brought out to authenticate the work of justice. They were carried out with the armies. They were born in, in procession to encourage the drooping crops. They were instruments of state, of law, and order, of personal well-being. Even the Pope, whatever theoretical claims were made for him, in practice, owed most of his authority to the fact that he was the guardian of the body of St. Peter. Through their relics, saints continued to be members of the community, hearing the pleas of petitioners, responding to the needs of people with divine intercession, and receiving their gifts of thanks, okay, at the tomb, right? Of all these popes, people would come, they'd light candles, flowers, et cetera, and ask for help. You know the vibe. They were participants, not only in the ceremonial lives or pivotal lives of these people, but in the daily lives, okay, of these people in Rome, of the people that venerated them, that loved them. In this sense, they were still alive. And for Stephen VI, not on his fucking watch. It was this continued presence that had Stephen VI in a fucking tizzy with his predecessor's body dumped in the Tiber River. No one could venerate his relics. Ironically, it was by treating Formosus as if he were still alive, propping him up on a throne, putting him on trial, subjecting him to a posthumous execution, as if you could die twice, that Stephen sought to kill him for good. He was found guilty. Spoiler alert, curveball, I know. Stephen VI declared all of Formosus's acts as Pope null and void. All consecrations, all appointments, and all ordinations were undone, which is crazy. Formosus's body was stripped of its garments and dressed in rags. Three of his fingers, the fingers of the benediction, with which in life he had given his blessings, 
were cut off and his body was cast into the Tiber River. Okay. Damn. Petty levels beyond beyond belief. By throwing his enemy in the Tiber, Stephen VI was taking part in an ancient tradition. For centuries, the Tiber River was where the ancient Romans disposed of their most infamous criminals. The flow of the Tiber bore away the political rivals of emperors and early Christian martyrs. It carried away the bodies of reviled emperors condemned to damnation. Oh, yeah. This goes back, right? The Tiber River is where bitches go to fucking not rest. They go to be swirled through rapids. It was even, according to some legends, the place where Pontius Pilate met his end. For thousands of years, the Tiber was where you threw anyone you wanted to permanently exile from life, from society, even from memory. The cadaver synod, the cadaver meet and greet, was the cause, ultimately though, of Stephen's prompt and precipitous downfall, okay? Because we all know karma strikes the fuck back. The appalling trial and savage mistreatment of Formosus's corpse provoked so much anger and outrage in Rome that within a few months, there was a palace revolution. <laughs> Stephen was deposed, stripped of his Pope clothing, and required to dress as a monk, imprisoned, and sometime in August 897 AD, strangled. Seems to be a popular form of papal revolution. Three months later, another pope, Theodore II, whose pontificate lasted only 20 days, all in the month of November, 897 AD, oh my gosh, my birthday month, which is the month right now, amazing, held a synod which annulled the cadaver synod and fully rehabilitated Formosus, okay? So we have a redemption arc for our boy Formosus, who has quite literally been eyes shut this entire fucking time. Theodore II also ordered that the body of Formosus be reverentially reburied. The corpse was brought back to St. Peter's Basilica in solemn procession. Once more clothed in the pontifical vestments, the body was placed before the confession of St. Peter's. There, in the presence of Pope Theodore II, a mass was said for the soul of Formosus, and his poor, battered body was restored to its own tomb. Oh, you thought it was over? Oh, it wasn't. It never fucking is. Here at Rebuttal. Okay, here at Rebuttal. Okay. Disputes over the legality of the cadaver meet and greet would continue because God forbid a body gets some fucking shut eye. This was not the end of the disputes. Sergius III, who was Pope from 904 to 911 AD, reversed the decisions of the synods of Theodore II, so essentially reaffirming Formosus's conviction and, and sentence, right? Being like, wait, no, I actually agree with, with our boy. With our boy, what's his face? Stephen. Sergius III even went so far as to place an epitaph on the tomb of Stephen VI, which basically said, Stephen VI was so right for that shit. Fuck Formosus. Stephen was right. Y'all are trash. Sergius III, while a bishop, had actually taken part in the cadaver synod where he was one of the clergy coerced into serving as co-judges with Stephen VI. Remember what I told you earlier? Sergius III was also the only pope to, one, order the murder of another pope, and also, two, to father an illegitimate son who became a pope. In addition to his time serving as a co-judge on the Cadaver Synod panel, in addition to reaffirming Formosus's sentence and then throwing an epitaph on, on Stephen's right tomb and being like, you were so real king— do fucking less. Like, do so much less during your time. Do so much less. 
Just like my ex, Sergius III was booked and busy with quite literally anything but a real job. Be so fucking serious for half of a fucking second. The Catholic Church is once again undefeated. Gold medal Olympic champions in ignoring the bad shit it ever did and gaslighting everyone about it until they are too distracted by the pretty stained glass to um, ever notice anything but the aesthetic. The decrees of Sergius III's synod marked the last formal pronouncement by the Roman Catholic Church on the lawfulness of the cadaver synod, which in Latin, in the language of the church, is officially known as the synod horrenda. There has never been a Pope Formosus II, although Cardinal Pietro Barbo had to be dissuaded from taking the name in 1464. He was like, I'm kind of vibing with it. What a moment. I love a comeback king. Um, yeah, everyone said, don't fucking do that shit. So he took the name Paul II instead. You're probably thinking, right? Prosecuting a dead man. We don't do that shit anymore. The last time we did that as a human race was in 2013. In Russia. In the trial and case of Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei Magnitsky died on November 16th, 2009, in a solitary confinement cell of the infamous Matroskaya Tashina prison in Moscow. Sergei Magnitsky was a 37-year-old tax lawyer and auditor who worked for the Moscow legal and audit firm Firestone Duncan. He was married and a father of two. Sergei was born in Odessa, Ukraine in 1972 and immigrated with his family at the age of nine to southern Russia. As a child, Sergei loved to read on family vacations while the rest of the family and friends would be splashing in the sea. Sergei would sit under a tree with a book. His studiousness was quickly recognized, and at the age of 15, he won the Republican Physics and Mathematics Olympiad. When he was 18, he moved to Moscow and attended the prestigious Plekhanov Institute. Sergei was brilliant in a quiet way. He never made people feel small but his professional expertise and knowledge was second to none. He was quietly philosophical, and his observations and viewpoints were penetrating, interesting, and challenging. Sergei had a unique way of looking at things, and conversations with him were inevitably eye-opening and memorable. That's why Sergei's ultimate demise, rotting in a Russian prison for several months, at the hands of his own government's torture and abuse was shocking. But even more shocking was the fact that his own Russian government, even after Sergei had been killed by them due to what he knew and had uncovered, the Russian government put him on trial. They put his corpse, his dead body on trial. How can they do that? Does anyone do that? Let's get into it. Sergei particularly believed in the law. He knew right from wrong, and he was willing to stand up for the things he believed in. Sergei was hired in 2007 to investigate a particularly murky case of corruption in the Russian government. In 2007, a group of Interior Ministry officials managed to obtain a $230 million rebate from the Russian state. They had fraudulently taken over three companies belonging to Hermitage Capital, an, asset, an asset management firm. 
Most Hermitage staff fled abroad, but Magnitsky stayed in Moscow and figured out the scam. The officials he accused had Magnitsky arrested and thrown in jail, where he was tortured and beaten by the prison guards and officials there. He was kept in inhumane conditions as reported by human rights officials and ultimately died in custody in 2009 after being refused medical treatment or family visits. His death rocked countries around the globe because not only was Sergei imprisoned, beaten, tortured, and held in inhumane conditions in this prison. He was held in those conditions because he had uncovered corruption, a scandal. Magnitsky alleged after his in-depth audit as a lawyer and tax consultant that a large-scale theft from the Russian state had occurred. Not only that it had occurred in an amount of about $230 million, but was actually sanctioned and carried out by Russian officials. A lot of the people involved in this audit ended up fleeing Russia before Magnitsky came out with his findings, but he believed in the rule of law. He believed in justice. He wanted people to know about this, and he knew someone had to tell them. So he stayed. Almost immediately after he made these allegations, he was arrested, obviously held without a trial. In total, Magnitsky served 358 days in Moscow's prison. He developed gallstones, pancreatitis, and a blocked gallbladder and was denied medical care. A human rights council set up by the Kremlin found that he had been physically assaulted shortly before his death. On the day of Magnitsky's death, the prison physician, believing Magnitsky had a chronic disease, sent him by ambulance to and later transferred him to Matryoshkaya Trishina's prison medical unit, which was equipped to help him. But the surgeon there, who described Magnitsky as agitated, trying to hide behind a bag and saying people were trying to kill him, prescribed only a painkiller and left him to receive a psychiatric evaluation. Magnitsky was found dead in his cell a little over two hours later. According to Lyudmila Alexeva, leader of the Moscow Helsinki group, Magnitsky had died from being beaten and tortured by several officers of the Russian Ministry of Interior. The official death certificate stated closed cerebral cranial injury as the cause of death, in addition to the other conditions mentioned. And the postmortem examinations showed numerous bruises and wounds on Magnitsky's legs and hands. Magnitsky died in prison in 2009 essentially for being a whistleblower, okay? All of this noise between 2009 and 2012 happened, okay? Essentially where international support was thrown behind Magnitsky's memory and the reality of living under Putin's government. So naturally, in February 2012, three years after Magnitsky had passed, the Russian police announced their intention to resubmit charges of tax evasion against Magnitsky for a second trial. As pointed out in the press, this was the first posthumous trial in Russia. Mind you, those tax evasion charges were what essentially they used to throw him in prison in the first time, but he never actually like got a trial for it. He was just tortured and killed, right? Um, allegedly committed tax evasion, even though he was the auditor the one checking people out. You get the vibe, okay? July 11th, 2013, yes, a court in Moscow went through with it and found Magnitsky guilty of tax evasion in the posthumous trial. The court 
also found another individual, Magnitsky's one-time client and a U.S.-born British investor, guilty of evading some $17 million in taxes. The world was pissed. This garnered, obviously, international attention, okay? We have not had a posthumous trial, a legitimate posthumous trial, accepted, affirmed, supported, enabled by a governing body as large as, oh, I don't know, the Russian fucking government um, since, I dare say, the fucking cadaver me in Greek time. Yeah. This, of course, has led to many a commentary and report and um, denouncement of this practice by many countries. Many countries have even awarded Magnitsky posthumously for the whistleblowing work that he did to try to shed light on the truth of the corruption in the Russian government. The rebuttal for this episode is simply that, hey, you probably would have guessed already that you could not be dragged through a trial as a corpse today in today's world, right? Probably could have guessed that without a law degree, without listening to this podcast, but I'm sure you could have never guessed that pettiness, loathing, Going the full nine yards to do shit out of spite has really never changed, has never changed in 1,126 years. We are all human, no matter what era we are born in, and using the law and the legal system to further our, our own gains thoughts, principles, ideals, power, I don't think will ever really end. But we can only hope that there are at least a few attorneys in the crowd who can raise their hands, stand up, and go, this shit is fucking insane. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Rebuttal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And thank you again to Tani Caesar for giving me this idea, for having the amazing halfway drunk episode we made on her podcast, Unhinged History. Please go over and listen. Watch that episode. It's fucking hilarious. It was from a few months back. You know, brush up on your rights as a dead person and get a will together. Okay, people. Oh, I don't have a notary. You don't need a notary to write a will, babes. Common misconception. No, you don't. You need a piece of paper, a pen, a signature, and maybe a witness or two and a, and a clear mind. Okay. Love you. See you next time. Bye, guys.